0: And I was asked and I accepted and I've been doing it for three and a half years now. I I don't even, I don't even, I don't even know. It's, it is a, a whirlwind blur.
1: Matt is the current voice and showrunner of the extremely influential Extra Credit channel, which has shaped discussion on gaming and history for a long time. How did it feel to step into such big shoes after years of a different voice in the channel and what did his family say when he decided to leave traditional media for YouTube? I am Alex and this is Genesis. To absolute strangers that ask what you do for a living, how do you describe yourself? Oh.
0: I know a couple other people actually have mentioned this on the show and I feel bad sort of, you know, saying a similar thing. But I would honestly say it depends on who's asking. If it is someone that I don't... Well, actually, no, this, that's a lie. I start it the same way every time. I say, I am a cartoon on the internet. And I leave it at that. And then based on that, I do a secondary explanation based on who I'm talking to. If it is someone that internet culture isn't sort of a big slice of their life... I'll just be like, oh, I, uh, I have an educational YouTube channel that talks about history, game design, mythology. It's, you know, it's really, really fun. And they'll be like, oh, cool. And if, if it's someone else, I go a little bit deeper depending on what aspect of that I think they would be interested in. But it always starts with, I am a cartoon
1: on the internet. <laughs> That's a hell of an opener. <laughs> I am extremely surprised. In fact, I will say, like, you have a very unique advantage in the sense that depending of the person you're talking to, you can lean into the, oh, we do videos about history, we do videos yes. about mythology, or if it's another type of person, we do videos about video games. Like, there's, yep. there's, there's a huge conversational range there.
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And I've noticed, especially like if I'm meeting friends or like significant others' parents, right? I lead with the history because m- most times they're not people that engage in gaming. And that's not everybody, of course, but just my in my experience. And then it's funny because they'll always they'll be like, oh, do, do you have a series that I might like? And I'm like, sure. And I try to pick something I think would be good for them. And then they'll come back in like a month or whatever. I see them or talk to them next and be like, oh, wow, you do an actual thing. And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Never say if it's a good thing. Just an actual thing. Just a
1: thing. It's real.
0: <laughs> so where were you born? I was born in Massachusetts in the United States in a town outside of Worcester. And I lived around there in, in, a, in a place called uh, Tingsboro for quite some time. And then I moved, my family moved when I was five or six to New Hampshire, which I don't know if you're familiar with some of the more ridiculous mottos of states in the United States. But New Hampshire's motto is live, free, or die. Wow. <laughs> like, it has death in the title, and which should be more aptly, because it is freezing there about two-thirds of the year, should be live, freeze, then die. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I, I identify most with New Hampshire, to be honest, because by the time I was four or five or whatever, that's when I could start understanding where I lived.
1: Considering that it was freezing seen most of the time, as you describe it, did video games take an part where a part of your childhood early on due to having to spend time inside?
0: Oh yeah, 100%. And, and, and let's be clear, I'm not making excuses. I was an indoor kid through and through. I did not play any sports. I think the closest to a sport I played was like, uh, I was on a bowling league for a while as a child. <laughs> I was I was a 65-year-old child. And no, video games played a huge part in me growing up. I remember my folks actually, I, I don't want to date myself here too much, Alex, but I did, I, I, f- there was an Atari 2600 in my childhood.
1: <laughs> Holy crap, That's that goes way back. That's more than I expected.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, And again, back then, I didn't quite understand it, of course. Uh, I remember not being able to play Pitfall Worth a Damn and actually enjoying the E.T. game because I didn't know what a good game was because, again, I was a baby. But I think it did actually, to be honest, really click. Here's why I know, beyond the fact that I played so many games growing up, that gaming was always something that was going to be in my blood. I don't remember a lot of moments from my childhood, but I can vividly tell you the type of car, which mall or what store, what you know, something, whatever, the moment that I was getting a new console. Oh, yeah. Like, I have those memories burned into my head, starting with the NES and it's so strange because when people are like what's your earliest memory of childhood i'm often like realizing that the box that my my dad just picked up had like a a, a gun that made ducks on a on a tv screen fall <laughs> down and i'm like what like i don't know like i i always I'm picturing it right now, and it's weird. I don't have a memory like that. I'm actually quite forgetful about a lot of things. But those moments, and then, you know, the more fun ones as you grow up and you start, like, really, like, saving up for video games and trying to get these things. And, like, I remember I skipped school for the Dreamcast. You know, like, stuff like that. So I have a a long history with the medium. At least playing it, I should say. It's always been very important to me, and I think the way my brain has been rewired for the better shows that. (laughs)
1: Things that create an impression that set you in a path that tends to change your life forever, they are etched in your brain. And we were talking about that. I was trying to remember for myself. And I realized, for example, I can picture exactly how my living room looked. The Christmas I got my Nintendo 64, which was my first console, I can picture exactly the image of my father arriving from a business trip, I'm bringing me a Game Boy Color, yes. and I can picture exactly the trip with it to Florida, where we walked into a Walmart and mm-hmm. I bought Pokemon Yellow. Because like, if those moments hadn't happened, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Those are like the, the thing that starts yeah. the path.
0: Yeah, and it's so strange and kind of wonderful that you know you, I, and uh, so many people are able to take something that is essentially a commercial product. <laughs> And have it tied in a very meaningful way to ourselves and where we went with our life. It's funny, you bring up B- B- Pokemon Yellow. I remember, I don't know if where you grew up if they did this with games, but uh, there's a, there was a store called Toys R Us, and it didn't put the games on the shelves. You had to go, there was like a piece of paper you ripped off a wall and you brought it to a case, like, and they unlocked the game and they gave it to you. And I remember Castlevania 2 on the NES, I remember like, I got the last one. It was the last piece of paper, which meant it was the last game. And, like, I remember freaking out, grabbing it, and, like, running through the halls of this toy store to get to the case like it was going to be gone. It's so funny, too. Like, I wonder if we remember these moments. And, again, I I can only speak for myself. But growing up, my my family was a a lower to barely middle-income family. And something that I think my parents really recognized early was my passion for this thing. And because I didn't, I think, have a lot of other deep-seated interests, at least in early childhood, and not a lot of other pastimes. It always felt like they shouldn't be buying me this thing, but they did. These are important moments. Weird. Now I'm getting... Wow. Wow. I just got emotional. Like, I, leg- <laughs> I legitimately got emotional. So, it's it's interesting. It's interesting how these things can shape us and and kind of lead us. I mean, I feel like both you and I... Uh, into into like later in life yeah. career mm-hmm.
1: directions. That leads into the question of were you considering early on that this would be something that you will orient towards a career? As a child, were you already thinking like, wow, I would love to work in something related to this or was it just a fantasy? Because I, I want to see the path that eventually took you there.
0: Oh, yeah, and it, it's a weird one. So, you know, on old computers and stuff, I'd start, like, trying to code things in basic, and I'd make, like, text adventures, right? And I think when I was at that age, I kind of hit a wall. I don't know if it was my attention span or, or what, but I never really could get the hang of, again, my limited knowledge of what, like, the idea of making a game would be. I used to make board games all the time. I would make the most complicated board games out of construction paper and little pieces from other things and, like, make my parents play these exorbitantly <laughs> odd rules. But that was about it because I never felt like I was able to grasp the creation part of it. And that is sort of when I think I transitioned uh, some of my attention to film because one of my friends had a, an old a VHS-C camera and he invited me over to, like, make movies one day. And we just, like, made dumb skits. We, I mean, we basically tried mm-hmm. remaking scenes from movies we liked, right? When we're kids, like, you're just sort of mimicking, you're, you're parroting something else. And then, for whatever reason, that was always something where I was like, oh, this is something where I can get across something similar. I, I'm having a similar emotional response, and I feel like I can get that from other people in a medium that, for whatever reason, the, the technical mm-hmm. side of it, my brain could wrap around easier. So from when I was, I guess, early to mid-teens, I kind of hard pivoted to trying to learn film craft, cinematography, and uh, whatever limited editing I could do. Back then, I mean, I remember at my high school's AV club, it was literally like, okay, here's three VCRs, and you film two tapes, and you do, like, start-stop edits onto the third VCR to do a cut. And it never looks good. You know, we didn't have great equipment, but like it was just, it, I don't know, maybe it was the fact that there was a, a, a sort of a, a simpler path toward creating something that might get an emotional response. But yeah, I, I, I pivoted pretty hard, honestly, for a while. Not that I stopped playing games. I played games throughout the entire thing. But like when, when I started thinking like, oh, what am I going to do when I grow up? It was like, oh, I'm going to be a filmmaker. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make movies. I'm going to do television shows. So it's not a, a huge leap. But it was a, an odd pivot moment, I think, because making games was always a fantasy and a hobby. And I think, again, mm-hmm. that's kind of why I fell hard into, like, role-playing games, tabletop stuff, because that's a big thing there. And that sort of scratched that itch whilst I was able to be like, oh, well, I could see if I could make money making movies.
1: Maybe. Huh? Uh- <laughs> I think... We are always limited whatever tools are accessible at the moment. And nowadays, it's easy to forget Mm. because game developing tools have become so stupefyingly accessible in the last decade or so. But the idea of working and creating a game back in the 90s, was absolutely ludicrous. Like you you have to be extraordinarily well-connected and extraordinarily very lucky. And even though something similar has happened with video making tools Mm -hmm. to the point that right now is easier than ever to create something like even film quality. Even back then, it was still inaccessible, but it was less inaccessible than making Mm -hmm. a game. So you had this, what I think a lot of us can identify with, you had this edge that you wanted to create something. It's just that you ended up following whatever the tool took you
0: yeah no that makes total sense that feels correct
1: so how how did that took into a career did you went to to school for film or something
0: yeah I did I have a I have a BA in film video and communications from a college that no longer exists <laughs> 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 it's, it's 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 a half truth. I went to a, a place called um, uh, Fitchburg State in Massachusetts, and now they are Fitchburg University. So like it's the the building and the academia is still there. It just my my diploma has a name of a college that technically isn't on a, like a college registry anymore.
1: You outlived the college.
0: Yes, yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I went to film school. I made movies. I went that path and. It's funny, so, you know, going through school, that was very, again, people sometimes ask me when when talking about this sort of stuff, like, you know, young people who are also interested in film, they're like, oh, is film school worth it? And that's a hard question to answer. Because again, like, kind of like what you said, right? The tools and the knowledge is more accessible than ever to create something on your own. And so depending on your personality type or the way you are driven, film school might be a redundancy. However, what film school gives you that I didn't find anywhere else, I was not lucky enough to find anywhere else, was putting you smack dab in the middle of like a hundred other people that want to do the thing you're doing. You learn a network and films, television, video games, they are all so collaborative. And I knew that, but I didn't know like how much the interpersonal relationships of content creation of any form really truly matter. And you can feel it in works that you do if you like, like the team you're working with or not. And film school gave me a group of people that were like-minded. Actually, it's funny. What was the film that just came out on Netflix? The Mitchell's versus the Machines. Did you see that? It was an animated movie. I haven't. I will bookmark uh, it now. It's very good. It's it's silly and it's a little bit <laughs> this is what I will say about it. It's very good. It feels Pixar-esque. It feels like it was written 40-year-old men who admit they don't know what the internet is anymore, and that's part of the joke. <laughs> But it centers around a girl who wants to go to film school and then robots take over the world. But the girl does like the whole thing is like no one in her small town understands her. But she gets to go to college for a little bit anyway. And instantly like she finds the people that are into the same movies and stuff. And that's a that's a pretty common trope. But uh, it's very, very true. And that's why the school I went to, I, I had the option of going to the one I did or a much more expensive one. And I didn't have the money to go to the expensive one. I technically didn't have the money to go to the cheap one, but I could get loans, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were like, oh, well, it will help your career more to go to the expensive one. And I looked at what the expensive one was. and It's like they didn't let you touch a camera till like your junior year. And like there was all of these sort of like prerequisite things you had to do. And I kind of made the choice for better or worse. I mean, I'm I'm technically not a filmmaker right now. So maybe if that was my goal, I chose poorly. But I chose the one where it's like, yeah, you come in, you get to work on stuff right away. You learn by doing and it costs a third of the money. You just don't have name brand recognition. And I think for my purposes of finding a group and finding people that I still talk to to this day and collaborate with on, on occasion on projects, like, I think that was a, a very worthwhile choice. Alec, did you do an internship anywhere? Did you do, did they send, oh boy. how does it, yeah, how does that function? <laughs>
1: Well, I'm one of the few people that uh, didn't went to anything film related Mm -hmm. that ended up in YouTube. I went to school for engineering. Oh, nice. And I did an engineering internship in a very large Chinese telecommunications company that you 100% have heard of. Oh, okay. (laughs) That it was the two worst months of my life and it made me hate everything about red tape and corporate bureaucracy. And it completely disillusioned me from the idea that I was going to work in traditional engineering. So thanks, internship. Wow. Yeah, it's funny how
0: in that, sorry, now I feel like I'm asking you the questions, but I'm interested. <laughs> like, <laughs> like in the moment, that must've felt horrible. Yeah. But looking back, you're like, oh yeah, this is, th- th- thanks, th- this is a good thing.
1: Yeah. Once time has passed and you realize that that actually saved you from making a very bad mistake, then it's good. I actually learned a bunch of things while there that were very positive Mm -hmm. regarding sort of the the tech industry at large, especially in telecommunications. Yeah. How did your internship go? Oh, (laughs) boy. So, okay. I
0: was sure it was going to be a nightmare because my school did this thing back then. Again, my non-existent school. (laughs) Where they're like, hey, what do you want to do? Tell us, and we will set you up with an internship. We don't want our students fighting over who goes where. So let us know what style of thing you want, and we'll see what we can do. And I said, I want linear narrative. I want stories. I want film or television and that thing. I don't really want to do documentaries. I don't really want to do commercials and stuff. So they set me up an internship at the show Law & Order. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) And I was psyched. I was so, so excited. It's one of those shows that I was never like a fan of, but you're, you you know it's all, like, everyone knows like, Dung, like the, the noise. Yeah. yeah like And I was like, oh, this is- It's part of pop culture. Yes. And I was like, this is great. This is great. This is great. Until three weeks before I was supposed to go, or maybe it was a little bit early. It just feels like all the time is truncated. I get a call from my internship coordinator telling me, oh, actually Law & Order's not taking interns anymore. So what else you got? And I was like, excuse me? I was like, you told me not to look. Like, the whole point was not to look. You said not to hunt for things. And they're like, yeah, well, they're, they're not taking interns anymore. And I was, I, I was lost. I had nothing. And I did a little digging, and I found out it's not true that Law & Order wasn't taking interns anymore. It turns out that the last student that my school sent to Law & Order was such a nightmare And, like, the last straw was, like, they actually, and I don't know the full story about this, but they apparently drove an actor off set when they weren't supposed to, like, under false pretenses or something. I have no idea. And then so Law & Order was, like, yeah, we're not taking any more students from this school.
1: Way to break it for everyone.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I was totally adrift. And so I just dove into the internet and I applied very quickly to like 50 places all over the place New York LA anywhere that would that would have me and I got I ended up getting two interviews in New York I got Conan O'Brien which was great and I got another one I think it was called like Fourth Row Films or something and I went and I stayed at one of my friends who was in New York's place and I came out and I did my Conan O'Brien interview and I think I did fine I, I never heard back but then while I was in New York waiting I got a call from who else but MTV? Wow. I didn't even remember I had applied to MTV. I just literally went to their website and was like, oh, here's a resume. Like the, the most, again, random, automated system. Here's my thing, whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, we, we got your application. Can you get in for an interview in the next two days? Like we have one more slot or something. And I was like, actually, I can. I'm here. So I, I went and I I I still, you know, it's again one of those moments. You remember like the, the person you speak to, uh wonderful coordinating producer named Corin. And we talked for a while and they offered me the gig on the spot. And then that was it. Then I I started an internship at MTV, which is weird and serendipitous because in a lot of ways, and, and I don't know if, if, was your internship paid at all or was it unpaid
1: as well? It was supposed to be paid. And they didn't. I, I won't go into details on the second part of that. Okay,
0: okay, fair. Uh, <laughs> I was never supposed to be paid. I mean, in a fair and just society, yes, I would have been paid. But that was not the deal that I made. But there was something very interesting about how MTV did their internships that I, I was surprised and really liked was at the beginning of it for like the first third of your internship, they just moved you every week through different departments, uh, huh. different shows, MTV News, the control room, the studio, because this was at the Times Square location in New York. And, and it was really nice because you got to get a taste of everything. And then for better or worse – the teams that you were with basically, like, I guess, kind of like bid for you to be working with Ooh. them for the rest of the time. So, like, it worked out best for them because they'd get someone that would be the best fit for their team, and da 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 da. And I ended up in the control room, which even to this day I do actually truly miss. That was such a fun. That was back when TRL was uh, just dying. <laughs> and yeah, it was such a good experience and taught me so much about like, I mean, to be honest, it was a crash course in production. Like, I learned film making, quote unquote, in college. I learned how to, you know, rudimentary cinematography and lighting and editing. And then uh, just watching this group of professionals churn out as much content as they did, sometimes live, and working together like a hyper-oiled machine, even to make silly stuff, was sort of like the last catch in my brain of like, ah, this is how you make a thing. You, you do it with people you trust, and you can do it quickly and cleanly. And yeah, so I was there and then eventually I PA'd and then weirdly enough, an editor quit. And they're like, Oh Matt, you edit. And I was like, <laughs> Yes, I do. And then there was some negotiation there. And then I I literally was an editor for uh, for MTV Viacom for like, I think five or six years. And then I moved wow. over to producing uh, and I did a couple shows over there. I was there till about
1: three or four years ago at this point. <laughs> Wow, okay, so you come from a background of a lot of, uh, shall we say, traditional media experience. Yes,
0: yes, very much so. Which was wild when I joined joined your
1: ranks, sir.
0: (laughs) Okay, so how the hell
1: does that happen?
0: So, again, let's go back to gaming, right? Mm -hmm. I love games. I did everything in my power to go to every convention I could, both comic book related and video game related. I think this is more of a lawful neutral approach than a strictly lawful good. Or maybe it's neutral good. I don't know. Whatever alignment people want to assign me. But I would use my MTV credential, which, again, was in no way in the marketing or, like, anything that should get a pass for any of these things. And I'd use my MTV email, and, and I would just be like, yep, I need a press pass. Yep, I need a thing. Right? Like, cool, cool, cool. And I, a ton of people do this, I know. It's just always something where I'm like, I probably shouldn't have done this. And I went to a ton of conventions. All over the place. Anyone I could. My favorite back in the day was PAX.
1: Have you been to any of the PAXes? Not yet. Not yet.
0: One day when they come mm-hmm. back, we got to get you out because it's, uh, it's weird. It's a delight overall. There's bad things to conventions, of course, but <clears throat> now we'll sort of get to the extra credits connection. I was a fan of extra credits, I think, since they, at least within the first year, like even back on the, the Penny Arcade TV years. Ooh. And I'd watched it, and I I watched it every week. And then when Extra History came out, I was like, yes, 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 yes. Because, again, history was something I was always interested in, but I never found a way that was digestible enough for me. I don't know if it's my attention span or my temperament or whatever. Like, I always had a hard time learning about history in a traditional way. And I was always so interested. South Sea Bubble and Ned Kelly, I think, were my my jams back in the day. Mm. And at one of these conventions, at one of the PAXs, I saw that Extra Credits was talking. And so I went and I went to the panel and I sat down and I watched it and it was delightful. And I waited a little bit after to talk to everybody involved. And it was like a line of like for like 45 minutes to try to talk to people. And I was like, you know what? It's fine. Like, I appreciate this content. They're, <laughs> they're slammed. I want to go see whatever is on the floor or whatever. And I, I declined and I, I left. And I went out, and me and some friends hit up some parties, and I came back to my hotel room, or my, my hotel lobby, maybe around like 1.30, 2 o'clock, bone sober, Alex. Totally, totally sober. <laughs> totally sober. And I, I saw in the lobby one of the previous co-creators, James, and our studio director, currently Jeff, in the lobby. And I was like,
1: oh, man, okay. Opportunity presents itself.
0: Yeah, and I was like, okay, Matt, Can you be sober for five minutes? Can you do this? (sighs) And so I like, I, you know, got myself up and I, you know, I had my cards and stuff back when like cards were more of an appropriate thing. And uh, I went up and I was like, you know, hi, I'm, I'm Matt. I'm, I'm a producer over at MTV. Like, I love the stuff. Like, maybe someday we can work on a thing. Like, da 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 Because at that time, I did have the power to sort of pitch things here and there. And I really believed in what Extra Credits was. And I, I was like, there might be something here. Maybe we could do something on television with this, right? And they, they were both very polite. And they took the card. And I, it wasn't like a long interaction or anything. And I just went up to my room. And I was like, I don't know. What just happened? <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a cool way to end the day, and then um then, long story short, within a week or so, they got back to me, and we just got to talking, and we tried working on a couple projects here and there that never kind of got to fruition for one reason or another, and then uh, eventually, I just was like, you know, I, I kept talking to people you know involved there oh i I'm, I'm missing another key point, and I'm sorry, my story is. A, a tangent, a, a bag of cats, if you will. <laughs> During this time, I also started doing voice acting because basically in my shows that I was producing, I would do the scratch track a lot of times, basically the temp track of audio if there's like an announcer or, 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 or VO or something. And then they'd end up just using it. And there was a couple points where I was like, I should be getting paid for this and they're like oh no you know it's that classic sort of back and forth depending on where you're going not every production is like Mm -hmm. that but I started like you know basically booking VO gigs around that And so then, so fast forward, you know, da 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 da. It was just all small stuff. It's nothing people have seen or heard. It's, like, commercial work. And, like, there was a couple shows where I did, like, an old-timey radio announcer voice on. (laughs) And um, then when Dan was deciding to step away from extra credits, they were in need of someone with production skills, managerial production skills, and someone who could do consistent narration. And I was asked, and I accepted, and... I've been doing it for three and a half years now. I, I don't even. I don't even. I don't even know. It's. It is a a whirlwind blur. But yeah, that's kind of how I got from my Atari twenty six hundred to being <laughs> the
1: showrunner and narrator of Extra Credits. I, I have questions. Yeah, that was a hell of a progression. Yeah, <laughs> when you go from being a fan of this show, which holds. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it, a legendary position among yeah. a, 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 and a specific vertical of YouTube. Yeah. And you're told, hey, the voice of the show, which everyone has associated as the voice of the show for, mm-hmm. I don't know how many freaking years. It was
0: seven. Seven or oh, eight. Holy crap.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For seven years, he's retiring, and we want you to take over him. Like, okay, <sighs> kudos for accepting that, but that must not have been a pressure-less decision.
0: No, that was honestly— I think, the most stressful choice of my professional life, weirdly. That makes a lot of sense. Because there's a couple things, too. So before I even get into that aspect, and that aspect is so huge, there's even sort of a, if I accept this, I'm going to step away from the type of production that I know and my entire kind of group, my entire group that I've sort of... Because, again, you know, and you know this, we, we, we work, most content creators or YouTube YouTube people, uh, you know, either are small teams or work by themselves, right? And yep. extra credits right now is it's we are a, uh, we don't have a studio, right? Like, we're a studio, but we all work from home. We mm-hmm. all over the place. A lot of people are in, in the West Coast. We have a uh, writer in Hong Kong. We have an artist in Spain. Like, we're everywhere, so, like, I'm going to, not that I don't talk to my old, my old production people anymore, but, like, the, I don't, I'm not going to get to see them every day. This sort of family that I've built on different shows and productions and my, my connections. Th- there's a the thing. There's the personal side, and then there's the professional side. Because I honestly thought, like, oh, no, what if I tank this? What if I'm, and by that I mean just, like, what if I, what if I mess this up so exorbitantly and I'm stuck and it's been, like, a year and all of my old connections are gone? Like, I'm basically, like, getting on a raft to an unknown place that I don't fully understand, but that I love so much, and hoping my raft doesn't sink. Hoping I know enough boat maintenance to make it to whatever shore I'm going to.
1: Not to mention, like even explaining to people around you must have been very complicated. You're leaving what a lot of people will have seen as a quote unquote stable and respectable position on a traditional known media, like freaking MTV, to go work for something that publishes videos on YouTube. Like I already had a hard time explaining to family and parents why I didn't went for an engineering job and decided to start doing YouTube videos. For you, that must have been like three or four times Hard.
0: I mean, I don't know if the difficulty is any different, but it's definitely there. I, I remember my family was like, huh? Like what? <laughs> but there, there is something that I will say. I, I, and my family came around to this too. But it's funny. A lot of the people that were either below me or at my production level, I don't know, like, you know, they're, you know, in, in the hierarchy of whatever the, the chain of command was, seemed to completely understand it's the people, my friends that were, like, higher-ups that were EPs and directors and stuff like that. They're like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you just worked so hard to get here. You In a couple years, you'll be doing a bigger, like, what are you doing? And I was, the answer that I sort of gave them was, like, look, nothing but respect for MTV. Do I like where it has gone and how it's a little bit nebulous and not as... I mean, let's be real. It's not as culturally important as it used to be. Mm -hmm. That's as negative as I'll get about it. But I don't love the stuff they pump out wholesale anymore. I I love a lot of the people that make it, but I didn't get into this to, you know, work on Teen Mom or something, right? Like I would just sort of say, be like, look, this is something that not only like I believe in and have loved being extra credits for, for years, but I think it's something that has a tangible real world value. Like, not to say that entertainment in general doesn't. We've even talked about it on this podcast. You can glean emotional resonance and importance in your own life from almost anything. Like, whatever connects with you and what gets you, like, going, that is a beautiful thing. However, I will say that the content at MTV that I was creating, while fun, I didn't feel like was moving the needle of, uh, even, even in, in a microcosm, moving the needle of society anywhere in a positive direction. It was either neutral or negative. <laughs> right? And I saw the work that everyone was doing over at Extra Credits, and I was like, this feels important to me. This feels like I could make a, a zaptometer or whatever the tiniest measurement of, uh, of difference. And, and I wanted to make sure that like this thing that I loved wasn't going to go away. And then, so that's on the TV side of things. On, on the YouTube side of things, I'm stepping into some medium that I do not fully understand. I'm stepping into huge shoes. Dan is the most wonderful kind of beast. He just, we, we had a long talk. What my voice would do in the show, right? And what I didn't want to do, and people ask me this a lot when I started, they're like, oh, are you going to pitch shift your voice? Are you going to modulate it up like Dan did? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't. That is, I I never want, I call it the, I don't know are you, this is a tangent, but are you familiar with the old, like the kid's show Blues Clues? Yeah. Have you heard of that? Okay, so apparently, I didn't watch this, but people have told me this. They replaced the main guy in that show with another main guy, and, like, through the this, this show's running. But they, like, never kind of addressed it. And, like, we knew that they were different, but they both talked and acted exactly the same. And fans got legitimately upset. Because who's this second asshole? I, I don't know if I could swear fully on this on this. Yeah, podcast. sure. Go ahead. Uh, uh, right? Who the fuck is this guy who's trying to be this other guy? Right? I knew that I could never replace Dan. What I wanted to do is try to sort of honor... All of the work that he had done and what the channel had done and and try to sort of keep it moving and hopefully bring the things I learned about television production in help, you know, structure us a little bit more like a production company to be able to uh, get a lot of content out, try to avoid um, crunch time, you know, like just stuff like like I was able to take a lot of stuff I learned and I hope make the production process better. So that was sort of like the one point where I was like, okay, I know this stuff. I can do the back end. Can I do the front end? (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Audience is still out on that. But I'm still proud of my choice of not ever trying to be or replace Dan. In my opinion, I will never do this job as well as he did.
1: But that's okay. I can't remember which video was it, but I do remember the first video you did. And I remember Mm -hmm. the announcement of Dan leaving. Yeah. And I remember watching that video and and immediately thinking, oh, this guy's trying something different. Like it's not, they're not trying to go from the same tone. Like there's something different. Oh, good And obviously I'm not reading through all the comments and extra credits videos. I only <laughs> look at, at things very superficially, yeah. but at least from an external point of view, it does look like people have not only accepted, but like normalize it in a way that is fantastic. Like I don't think I have ever heard anyone complaining for a long time. With that said... If there's anything that a lot of us in YouTube have learned is that when people through years get used to something and you change it even a little bit, then people get very feisty Mm -hmm. because they're very used to the thing being the thing it is, which is uh, a, a bit of a curse sometimes where you're trying to want to try something new. Yeah. So for seven years, a lot of people were used to a very specific type of voice and way of doing things. And I do remember some of the comments in that video being like, oh, I wish I could go back and Mm -hmm. like even, were you expecting that there was going to be a a difficult transition period?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, how could you not? Like again, it's exactly what you said. People do not like change and on YouTube doubly so, which is weird Mm -hmm. because the way the algorithm seems to work is it kind of wants you to try new things, but then it doesn't like reward (laughs) you for it, right? Yeah. Uh, Or at least, I don't know, that's a whole other conversation. I was fully prepared well, actually, let me rephrase. I thought I was fully prepared. I, I knew it was coming. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you know this too, right? Like, all it takes is one bad comment. And I'm not even talking about, like, the trolley comments. Like, trolley comments, I can, and I've gotten better, but even back then I can roll off my back because it's whatever. But it's those comments that, like, are well-worded enough where you're like, oh, shit, this person might have a point. And you're, <laughs> right? Like, and and that, I don't even know if I want to differentiate between, like, the mean-spirited ones and the constructive criticism ones. But but in, in, a, in a weird way, you know, I internalized a lot of that. There's actually an episode we did, I think maybe even, it might have even been like a year in. We did an episode on imposter syndrome. And there was a part that just sort of resonated with me when I was recording it. And then I just sort of went off script. And I left this in the episode. People can go watch this episode. Where I kind of break down and kind of exactly what I just told you. But, like, Mm -hmm. you know, when I'm doing these episodes, I'm speaking in a much different cadence than you and I are talking right now, right? I do the, like, um, you know, in-game design. We often think that this thing is that thing and the other thing. You go
1: into, like, narration mode.
0: Yes. Where then when I hit this moment in the imposter syndrome video, I just sort of – I started talking in the video like I'm talking to you now. I talked about how I was feeling, how it doesn't go away, but there's, you know – you find ways to mitigate it and, and all of these other things. And it was that actual moment that I did read the comments on that one. And like to what you said, there was so many more positives than negatives there. And I think at extra credits is best. It's this. Turning these frown moments sort of upside down. Taking something that is painful and hard or a piece of history that is often not discussed or a myth that has been misconstrued or something and taking it and talking about it and going through it And using whatever resonance that has with you personally, and telling sort of a bit of your story with it, or sort of in it, and hopefully taking that energy in that way has some sort of, again, I always use the term moving the needle, a a slight uptick in a positive effect somewhere. And, you know, we have a lot of great people that watch the channel that do tell us that it has some things have affected them in that way, and that's, you know, why... I still believe I made the right decision to to jump on the YouTube train. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The opportunity to work on something that you feel matters. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That that actually changes things for better. Exactly. Yeah. As the years go by, you have become the accepted modern voice of the channel. (laughs) Is there anything that you have sort of learned and improved? When you look back at those first videos, makes you go like, oh, God.
0: Yeah, a few things. Uh, the first videos, it's interesting. I didn't have my current narrator cadence down enough. I think I, I, in, the, in the beginning videos, I think the first extra credits I did is on blockchain. And I didn't know what my voice was supposed to sound like. Again, I was just coming off of voice acting work. So like at that point, I was still trying to find like what my voice would be. I knew it wouldn't be high-pitched and modulated. I have a, a deeper tone. But I think I like I talked really slow. And I spoke like this. And I was very poignant and bulleted with my sentences. And I masked a little bit of the the deepness of my voice and I didn't speak as quickly. And listening back to that, I'm, I'm always like, Ugh. <laughs> like, it's funny. I, for, for lack of a better term, one of our most popular series since I've started was the 1918 flu pandemic. I'll let you and the listeners guess why that is. <laughs> but those were my first extra histories I did. <laughs> and like, I do. I love those episodes. I think they're great. I can't listen to them. I hear all the rough edges. I hear all the fear. I hear all the, the insecurity. This is something fun, I think. Uh, I also learned how to mitigate that as I went through the years. And one of the things was the introduction of Zoe, the cat, my
1: mm-hmm. cat. Zoe's a real cat for those people that don't know. When did that happen? I just saw it pop up in the channel one day.
0: Yeah, in the first few months, I kind of, again, it was something where I didn't want to try to mimic exactly what had happened, but still have the feeling and the and the importance of what these shows were and what they meant to me. And I got Zoe when she was a kitten, and she's been sort of, you know, as pets often are, my weird emotional rock and just a weird talkative cat. Like, you can just, like, look at her and say a sentence, and she'll wait till I'm done and meow. Like, I don't <laughs> think she's understanding me. I'm not that so lost in my own brain. But in, like, videos and things... You can make it seem like we're having a conversation. And I was like, oh man, I wish I had like a, a sort of like foil character, right? Like, or someone that like, if I'm making a point, they could be a joke or they could tell a thing or like whatever. And because I knew that it was a mainly narrated thing, I was like, well, it can't really be another person. And I was like, oh, my cat is fucking awesome. <laughs> like <what?" laughs> like we, we put her in little bits here and there. And then I just started recording her meowing every meow. In the series, with the exception of one, and I don't even remember where it is, it was early on, is actual meows of Zoe. It's not canned cat stuff. I sit her up on on, on my booth and I talk to her and I record her meows. <laughs>
1: that is a huge surprise to me. I assumed were those were sound effects. Nope,
0: nope. Well, I mean, they're 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 ones that she made. <laughs> no, no, but
1: I mean, they're from my library or something.
0: Yeah, no, no, that's her. I, I'm always a, a bit of a, a punch-down-on-myself humorist whenever I want to kind of do anything. that I'm purposely, I think, corny so that people can laugh at the joke failing more than the joke. Maybe that's a protection mechanism, I don't know. But, like, one of my favorite episodes was in a, a an escort quest, an episode on escort quests. And I think it was Scott DeWitt, the artist, who sort of made this happen in the episode, which, again, shout-out to all of our artists. Nick, Scott, Allie, Jordan, David, They are phenomenal. And they make moments like this really sing every time where in the narrative of the episode, I'm the dummy escortee. I'm the dumb AI that like keeps running into the door or like charging the guy with the rocket launcher. And like Zoe's standing there like, what the fuck are you doing? Like like, to to have a character that then is like put into this series... That people kind of understand, like that she's like kind of positioned in the weird meta narrative of extra credits of being the smart one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that was it's always a a, a trope that I really I really love doing, and I was glad that it could be based in something a- as real as a animal as an slightly anthropomorphic animal can be. She's a weird cat and she's smart in real life. And so I wanted to make, I just wanted to crank that to 11
1: and put it in the show. Have you seen fan reception to Zoe? Have people been making like fan art or something? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, We
0: have in our Discord, we even have a a channel called Zoe's Pet Party. (laughs) where it's (laughs) it's basically a bunch of it's like where people share their cute animal pictures but like i try to upload pictures of zoe whenever i can and they're always very stuff we actually have i guess this is the part of the episode where i shill our product uh we have a wonderful zoe plushie that i helped design in our store and one of the things i'm really proud of is i got zoe from the aspca which is a animal rescue group in the united states they might be global i don't no, probably not. I bet you the A stands for America. Now that I'm thinking about it, but, but part of the proceeds of every plushie go back to the ASPCA because I love animals. I want to help where I can, and if I can sell minimal pieces of fluff that are cute and send a couple bucks, you know, to help the place that gave me this wonderful fur beast that's sleeping behind me, I'm very happy to do it.
1: How did I not know that this plush exists? I'm definitely <laughs> going to buy one of these.
0: Yeah, no, they're very, they're very, very, uh, they're fun. I like them because. Like, you can pick the eye direction. Yes, this is I was, that was specific. I was like, "Do you want it looking straight into your soul, or do you want it looking away from you like a cat does?" And um, <laughs> and the, the cool part is the bottom of them is actually filled with beans. So like, she's always <sighs> like, you drop her and she sits upright most
1: of the time. Oh god, I need a mascot <laughs> character to make merch of. This is amazing. <laughs>
0: It's very fun. Well, I, and and uh, you know the previous EC crew did a, the wonderful game plushie, which mm-hmm. I'd seen all over the place, and I love very much. And actually, the company that makes these is called uh, Squishables, and they are so good to work with uh, to design thing. I know that the previous crew designed game with them. I designed Zoe with them. They were so lovely and able to take a tiny image. That, that I believe, it might have been Nick who instantly who drew that. I don't remember. Could have been Scott too. And turn it into this like really fun iconography version of the
1: cat. Well, while you were telling this whole story, it's now on my cart. And I just need to put my credit card for it to come to me. So you definitely sold me on this. Nice. That's going to be a nice background prop for some videos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. No, please do. I love, and I have seen Zoe's pop up here and there on either Twitch streams on other places or like YouTube stuff every once in a while. And it freaks me out. I'm like, it's funny. Uh, the, uh, my grandfather, um, who is very old and does not understand what I do, only understands that Zoe is famous on the internet. And every time I talk to him, he says, is Zoe still getting fan mail? This isn't a lie because there's like fan stuff in the discord, it's not like physical mail but that's what he, how he thinks. And I was like, "Yep, Zoe's still getting fan mail. And he's like, good, then you're fine. And I was like, "Yep." That's it. I'm fine. Zoe's getting fan mail. <laughs>
1: that is terrific.
0: Sorry this turned into 20 minutes on my cat. <laughs> no, no. This is, this
1: is fascinating. It's, it's part of the story. It's part of your story as a creator. We we're heading to the hour mark, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. before we close up, I want to know, is there anything towards the horizon in terms of projects that you're working on that you're particularly looking forward to Ooh. that you can talk about, of course? Right. Oh, what can I talk about?
0: Okay. I'm going to say a couple things and then I'm going to get increasingly vague as I go down the list, (laughs) okay? We just did a wonderful charity stream with Rise Above the Disorder with our intrepid stream overlord, Will, and he uh, and I did a Dark Souls crowd control run. Our super generous community blew past our initial goal of like 4K, and I think by the end of it, we made $15,000 plus for Rise Above the Disorder, which is a great mental health awareness and and help charity that people should support. But in that, we had to keep thinking of stretch goals. (laughs) On the fly, because people were so generous and we didn't have it planned. So we have a couple things coming down the line, which I'm sort of very excited about. These are sort of already announced, but we don't know when they're going to happen. We did this last year for a charity stream uh, reward, but we're doing more uh, RPG one-shots. Actually, on the channel right now, there's a one-shot run by our community manager, Arthur, who is an awesome, awesome human being, that we did. And it was very, very fun. Arthur is a phenomenal DM. And so we're doing that again and maybe some extra stuff. One of the other projects that we promised we would do before the end of the year was, this is going back to Zoe again, an episode like, and I'm hard air quoting right now, written and illustrated by Zoe.
1: You you have my attention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> like, it's going to be something, and I, I we haven't figured out exactly what it is yet. I have sort of an angle for it, but, like, it's going to be an all sort of comedy-esque show, of course. Like, we're not going to dive deep into game design but just have, a me- like, a thousand meows because that's not going to make anyone happy. Or maybe it would. Maybe there's a specific part of the internet where that would be the most watched thing for one person. So we're going to try to craft sort of an episode... At some point before the end of the year, about that. Oh, and then the last thing I can actually fully talk about that I'm always excited to is I do a podcast on the side that I'm always trying to grow. And actually, Alex, if you ever have anything that you want to talk about in the in the space of film, I have a podcast called The Only Podcast About Movies. I know it's er- a, <laughs> yeah, it's erroneously titled, and there's an asterisk somewhere in there where me and my, my buddy Shaheer Dowd, who's a very talented director, kind of highbrow, lowbrow review film. So if Alex, seriously, if there's ever a time where you're like, I just watched Mortal Kombat or anything, and you're like, I have thoughts. Like, let me know. And, oh, and please come Going on. to
1: take you on that offer for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, I have that that I'm always working on. We have a couple fun things planned there. And then the last thing I can tease. Oh, wait, no, there's two things I can tease. We are in the process of working on a nebula original type thing Ooh. that is something that we've never done. And I don't know if it's going to work, but that's exciting and terrifying. And I am very excited to see if it functions and if people like it and how long we can make it run for. <laughs> uh it, it will be it will be game focused it will be focused on video games so I have that as as generic as that can be and there's always the hint of a possible either limited series or something of a a, a show of a different extra variety oh boy so that is also some some whispers on the internet
1: yeah that's, we got a lot of stuff going on <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your story. This has been a fascinating time. You will be happy to know that while you were teasing your next set of stories, I managed to get my credit card to function and I have bought the plushie. I was extremely tempted to get both the side view one and the up view (laughs) one, but I live in a very small apartment, so I had to compromise. Which one did you go for? Uh, Side view. Nice. It has a really nice, like if you put it in a corner.
0: Yep. like it feels nice you'll be you'll be happy with that choice yep
1: that's that's going to be the plan
0: well thank you and and also feel good that some of that uh some of that money is going to help actual like real life non-stuffed animals so
1: exactly yeah fantastic
0: thank you so and hey thanks for having me on this show this was super fun and I hope not too indulgent uh just talking about myself
1: that's that's the point of the show
0: <laughs> all right all right well there we go.